You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. It is Friday, August 11th. This is The Christian Commute. I am your host, Seth Dunn, and you are riding home with me a little bit early to beat traffic. And uh, this might be the last Christian commute you get for a while. You know, no one's guaranteed tomorrow. Jesus could come back at any time. We could die. You could die. I could die. Whoever. But I'm going to tell you this. I don't foresee me going back to work until next week because the whole world is getting COVID. It's back to school week. My kids went back to school Thursday. There's already kids coming home with COVID. There's people at work in my office, or I should say not in my office because they have COVID. So if I don't have COVID by the time Monday comes, I'll be surprised. So um, nothing. it's not going to feel bad or anything. Of course, whenever I feel, I get psychosomatically sick. Whenever somebody around me is sick, or the people say, "Oh, my, my legs are achy," I can feel it coming on. But I don't think I have a fever. But I really, really think I'll have COVID if I don't have it already. So I'll probably just, out of an abundance of caution, work from home next week. Not that. I really feel like COVID is dangerous anymore. I'm not trying to be insensitive to the people who've died of COVID. I mean, I have people in uh, my family, or like my, in, like, not my immediate family. My sister-in-law's mother died of COVID. And, you know, we didn't expect her to die. She was in her 70s, I think. And um, my brother's best friend's father-in-law died of COVID. Uh, he was very old, and uh, but my my sister-in-law's mother wasn't. Uh, so I know there's people who've gotten COVID and died unexpectedly. Uh, trying to think of somebody else. Uh, oh, the the children, the preschool director at church almost died with COVID. Nevertheless, in my opinion, everybody who's died of COVID, everybody who's going to die of COVID has died already. That's my opinion. And I am not going to live my life in quarantine land. I'm just not going to. I'm going to, if I get COVID, I'm going to treat it like I have a cold. And you know, when you have a cold, you don't want to get anybody else sick, but you don't shut your life down. But <coughs> there's probably some corporate rule about not going to work when you have COVID. And there's really no pressing reason for me to go to work physically ever. I can do almost everything I can do at work at home. I can almost everything. I mean, I'm, I'm a computer guy. I sit on the computer, tap, 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 spreadsheet, spreadsheet, Power BI, Power BI. So people are going to have COVID in my house. I just know it. So that's that. All right, what's going on? More what besides gloomy news. It's, it's raining. I want to play soccer. We're supposed to have soccer tournaments this weekend that we're all going to play infected with COVID probably. Uh, it's, ugh. 
I'm so mad. I hope this rain is just raining in Dalton and not Kennesaw. I want... I'm ready to watch sports. It's fall. I want to watch soccer and football. Ugh. I'm not watching soccer on TV. That's boring. But I want to watch my kids play soccer. So we'll see. That's what I'm supposed to be going to do. But I have a full show for you today. Today, I'm here. I did go to work today, and I've got a full show. Today's show title is Evangelism Balance. I might change it to something else. I have a question in the inbox about Reformed churches. And as always, we have the Bible chapter review. So here in the rain is Matthew chapter 23, verses 34 through 36. You'll recall yesterday on the way to the Chatsworth Pizza Hut, we talked about Jesus telling those wicked Pharisees to finish the job because they're just as murderous and wicked and uh, prejudiced towards the unrighteous as their fathers uh, were. So starting in verse 34, he says, Therefore, therefore behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus is condemning them. They are condemned. And he says he's going, by the way, he didn't say, God the Father, heaven is going to send you prophets. He says, I am I am sending you prophets and wise men. Why does Jesus have the ability or authority to send prophets, wise men, and scribes? Aren't prophets sent from God? Yes, because Jesus is God. They wouldn't have missed the way he was talking. You don't miss it either. What's going to happen to these prophets, these wise men? These scribes who are going to be sent by Jesus. And we can think of some in our head. We can think of Stephen in the book of Acts. We can think of the Apostle Paul and how he was treated in his epistles. Who, by the way, was a Pharisee who set out to condemn Christians and he became one of the Christians who was condemned. They're going to be killed, crucified, scourged in the synagogues. They're going to be mistreated just like the prophets before Jesus were mistreated. He says the guilt of all the righteous blood on earth from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. So Zechariah was a prophet. We have a book of the Bible named Zechariah. Now Jesus is speaking Aramaic. I do not know the Aramaic alphabet, but I know part of the Greek alphabet. In English, A is the first letter, Z is the last. In Greek, Alpha is the first letter and Zeta is the last. So Abel, Alpha, Zechariah, Zeta. And I wonder, I wonder if you were to check the Jewish canon or the Septuagint. 
I wonder if Zechariah is in the back. I want to say I've heard that before. You can Google that. But obviously Abel was the first righteous person murdered in history. And we find him in Genesis. And then you have Zechariah, one of the latter books of the Old Testament. He's murdered. He's a righteous person. He's a prophet. So Jesus is pretty much covering all the righteous pers- people ever murdered uh, by the wicked Jews. He says the blood of all of them is going to be on your hands. Make it complete. You're just like the people who murdered the righteous before you. You're going to murder the prophets I send. And they're in the midst of rejecting Jesus and they're going to crucify him too. They stand, they stand condemned before the people. They stand condemned before God. How will they, as Jesus say, said, how will they escape hell? And he says, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This isn't some prophecy for the far off future. This is something that's going to happen within their lifetimes. And we know what happened with, we know Jesus is crucified. And we know Stephen is stoned. And church history or tradition tells us uh, many of the apostles met similar ends. We know Paul did. So the Pharisees are condemned. And then Jesus is going to lament Jerusalem in verse 37. I don't know when we'll get to it. I'm going to say, Lord willing, next Tuesday. Maybe I'll get to work Friday. Maybe I'll get to work Monday. Maybe me and my family won't have COVID, but... I really feel like we're going to, because I already know kids are coming home with it from school already. And let's see, my baby is sick. She's got a stuffy nose. One of my kids already stayed home sick from school today. (laughs) Uh, All right, here we go. Question in the inbox. This is from April from Parts Unknown. She didn't tell me where she was from. She's a new listener, so we can forgive her. Hey, isn't it nice to have a new listener? Because new listeners send in questions. Uh, And this is her first time sending in a question. She has been uh, SBC her whole life, Southern Baptist. And she says, she's like, I'm not, I don't want to say I'm a Calvinist, but she says, I think my beliefs are stronger than most Baptists. I, I get what you mean. I get what I'm. It's not saying that Baptists don't have strong beliefs, but I think I get what you're saying. I, I, I think the idea she feels like she might be reformed because I bet when she reads social media, blogs, and 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 Twitter and Facebook, I bet she seems to sympathize more with Reformed Baptist opinions than the general Southern Baptist opinion. So she says, "Can you explain?" Reformed theology or give references? Well, yes, I can. But first of all, let me say this. All Southern Baptists are Baptists. Some Reformed Baptists are Southern Baptists. But not all Southern Baptists are Reformed Baptists. I'd say very few Southern Baptists are Reformed Baptists. At least now, 
when the con- when the convention was founded in 1845, almost everybody was a Reformed Baptist, or at least a Calvinistic Baptist, a regular Baptist, not a general Baptist. I want to say I talked about regular Baptists and general Baptists and separate Baptists a long t- uh, within the last six months. I want to say that. Anyway. So when you talk about Reformed theology, how about this? All Reformed... Well, all Reformed people are Reformed. Some Reformed people are Baptists, but not all Reformed people are Baptists. Some of them are Presbyterians. So... If I was going to explain Reformed theology, I would just say something like this, and I'm going to say it. Uh, Reformed theology is that theology which lines up, this is tautological, Reformed theology is that theology which lines up with the Reformed confession. The most popular ones, or the most historic ones, how about that being the Westminster Confession, which is what Presbyterians hold to, and the London Baptist Confession, the second London Baptist Confession of 1689, which is what a lot of Reformed Baptists hold on to. But for something to be Reformed, the idea is that it came out of the Reformation. So what did you have? You had Luther rejecting the Pope and then, alright, now you got Lutherans. And now you have an outgrowth from there. Now you have the Dutch Reformed. Now you have Presbyterians. And you you eventually end up with Reformed Baptists. And while that was going on, uh, or after that started, you got the King of England. I really wouldn't call Anglicans Reformed. You got the King of England making his own Church of England to separate from Rome. So there's another denomination right there. You have John Wesley, who's not Reformed. Wesleyanism is definitely not Reformed, uh, coming out of the Church of England. So that's sort of a not... People people could say broadly that the Church of England came out of the Reformation, and I would get that argument, but it's not Reformed, nor is the Methodist Church that came from it. It's Wesleyan. The Methodist Church is. But what you will find generally when you talk about Reformed theology, just generally, you can read the confessions for, for yourself, you will find a Calvinistic idea of soteriology. They're the elect and non-elect. They're the predestined and the reprobate. Well, there's a, the reprobate are predestined for hell and the elect are predestined for heaven. Okay? You're going to find some degree of covenant theology that God deals with his people through several covenants. But even in low church Baptist land, you have the old covenant and the new covenant. But I'm going to talk about, you'll, you'll have a more specific understanding of the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. I may have left all the covenant. I don't think so. But all these and all these ways with which God is covenanted with mankind and with his people. Reformed Baptists are going to baptize people 
Presbyterians are obviously going to sprinkle them. You will find a commitment, generally speaking, to the regulative principle of worship. So, Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians who are Reformed tend to have church services that adhere to the regulative principle more so than non-reformed churches. So you're, I bet a lot of Southern Baptist churches see the clown shows out there with Spider-Man and Bo Peep and Woody and say, that's horrible, we'd never do that. But they just wouldn't do that because they think it's stupid. Reformed Baptist churches wouldn't do that because it goes against the regulative principle. So you're going to find an adherence to the regulative principle, and because that's there in Reformed churches, it's going to seem more orderly. And there's not going to be, you're just not going to find schemes and, and videos and weird stuff that goes on like that. You're going to find singing, corporate confession, corporate prayer, responsive readings, singing in a sermon. That's generally what you're going to find. If there's not a Reformed Baptist Church near you, April, and you want to experience a such a uh, service, like what would a regulative principle service be like, you might be able to find a PCA church, Presbyterian Church in America. It would be very similar. Make sure you don't go on a make sure you go on a day where they don't sprinkle a baby and call it baptism. If you want to find a Reformed Baptist Church, you can find it at founders.org. Is it founders.com or founders.org? You can just Google the Founders Baptist website. It'll pop up. And Reformed theology is confessional. It's where they say, here's the confession, and we're all going to believe this confession. Whatever it is, whether it be the Westminster or the London Baptist Confession. So everybody's together on points on those points. Uh, you're going to find an emphasis on federal headship, the federal headship of Adam. Because we're all dead in Adam. It's part of our sin nature. That's where total depravity comes from. In general Baptist land, not the land of general Baptists, but in Baptist land in general, some people are going to focus on Adam's federal headship and some people are not even going to think about it. Because that colors everything else. If everybody's got a sin nature, how do we go about doing church and evangelizing people? You will find, and I think this is why you say you think your beliefs are stronger than a lot of Southern Baptists, you will find among Reformed people doctrinal commitment. They're more dogmatic. Like, here's the confession of our church and everybody needs to believe this. Well, in Southern Baptist world, they'd, they'd baptize a dog if he made a profession of faith. And they'd put a kennel in the back for him. I mean, they just want numbers. They just want people to come. I mean, God forbid they send anybody away. I've been in Baptist churches around town before, and I've seen people. I'm like, I know you don't believe. I've read your Facebook. I know you don't believe like I believe. I know that you're, you're fine with homosexuality. I know that you're fine with people getting drunk. I know that you're fine with people shacking up. Why are you in this Baptist church? I've seen it. But they just don't want to send anybody away. <laughs> you will find more of a tendency to do church discipline. Now here's the thing. That has nothing to do with Reformed theology. It's just they have a tendency to do it. 
because they have stronger beliefs. If you just want to get down to the basics, they adhere to a Reformed Confession of Faith, which will be Calvinistic in its soteriology. They also tend to be not dispensational. They will have a different eschatology, whether it be pre-mill, post-mill, or a-mill. Oh, they'll also despise the Pope. You're not going to find people in Reformed churches saying, Catholics are our brothers in Christ. No, they're not. Asterisk. Some of them are because they just got saved and they haven't figured out, and they should and will soon, that the Catholic dogma conflicts with the Bible. So if if I had to say just today, forget about what it was in 1689 or the 1700s when they were writing these other confessions, or these Reformed confessions, if you you walk into a Reformed church, it's less like a circus. You're not going to find a ball pit in the foyer. So, I don't know. And when was this? It might have been two years ago. They put a ball pit in the foyer at church at First Baptist. And if you evangelize somebody, you were supposed to put a ball, like a showbiz pizza ball pit. I mean, nobody got in it and played. It was more like a box. I shouldn't call it a ball pit. You're supposed to put a ball in the ball pit if you evangelized somebody or invited somebody to church. And then if they got saved, I think you're supposed to put a red ball in. I mean, you would never see that at a Reformed Baptist church. And that leads me into today's show topic, Evangelism Balance. We're going to talk about that. But before I do, let me make a a quick correction from yesterday's podcast. I was listening to the show yesterday... And I got to the end, and I was having a good laugh about the Notorious SOP, so I Googled the picture to look at it again. And I said they had real guns, pointing guns at the camera. They didn't. Only one guy had a gun. The rest were making uh, gun like gun motions with their hand. Like, you know, you put your thumb up, and you put your pointer finger out like you're, like you're playing Cowboys and Indians as a kid. So there was only one real gun. I don't, I don't know why I remembered the picture that they had real guns. So there's only one gun. I think the one gun was real. You know what, guys, if you're listening out there, David Allen, it would have been a lot cooler if you did with real guns. All right, let's talk about evangelism balance. So we talked yesterday ad nauseum about Johnny Hunt, Steve Flockhart, Aragon Canner, that type of Baptist preacher and that type of Baptist culture. That they're in the Southern Baptist Church, but they're... They're really more of a hybrid of independent fundamentalist Baptist culture and Southern Baptist culture. Try to imagine if you were from Chattanooga like I am, Tennessee Temple in the 80s. That's what Liberty University is modeled after, Tennessee Temple. And you know that, that's the people, you had to have a chaperone to go on a date. And you had to have a crew cut. I'm not making this up. And if you were a student there, you had to wear slacks. That type of independent Baptist uh, culture. No drinking. No drinking. Drinking's not allowed. And obviously the, the way the the legalism about the dress and the clothes is, is tapered off over time. I'm just trying to say that's 
that's the cultural milieu of, of somebody like Johnny Hunt. It's churches that, this is going to say, seem silly, really focus on evangelism. Because shouldn't all churches focus on evangelism? Shouldn't every Christian focus on evangelism? Yes, we all should. Uh, the evangelism, uh, the gospel is the good news, the evangel, and we're going to tell people about it. But the reason a lot of those churches, like a, like a First Baptist Woodstock, or a, a church uh, pastored by somebody like Steve Lockhart, or Bucky Kennedy for that matter, Ergen Kennedy, you just name these guys, Jerry Vines, is that the churches have evangelism programs. And you get somebody like Steve Flockhart who gets saved and gets baptized and all of a sudden, five months later, he's an evangelism pastor because he just goes around telling everybody about Jesus. He's checking off the boxes. So when you show up in a church like this, at Sunday school, they give you a piece of paper and you're supposed to fill out, just write a number down, how many people you evangelized that week. Participation in visitation, Tuesday night or Thursday night visitation, is expected. There's a program. And they go out and buy programs from people like Dennis Nunn to do evangelism training. They come up with little canned responses. They schedule it. When I was at Tabernacle, they'd send people out two by two. First of all, they brought in Dennis Nunn for every believer or witness. Who's an evangelism trainer. And then they, I, for, I forget what they called it, but then they'd send people out two by two. You signed up with a partner. I've talked about that before. There are formal programs, and there's a staff person put in charge of those formal programs, and he is expected to grow numbers. And that's all well and good, because we can sit there and say, all right, that's following the Great Commission, because you're evangelizing. But a lot of those converts you make are false converts. There is an emphasis in churches like that on getting people in more than an emphasis on retaining and discipling those people. Sort of the Gene Simmons approach. Ask a thousand women to sleep with you and one will. Invite a thousand unconverted people to church and a hundred of them will make a false profession and come. And keep coming. Maybe two will make a genuine confession. I don't know. But it, it's a numbers game. Numbers, numbers, numbers. And that's how people like Steve Lockhart grow a following and get a reputation, a good reputation, other than the bad one he deserves, is because he can get people to come to church and make professions. The same way salesmen can get people to buy cars. Or buy anything. Guys, in this world, there are salespeople. And that's what they do because they're good at it. They're good at not only cultivating relationships for the long term with people, they're good at breaking the tension and cultivating a rapport in the short term with anybody, with strangers. There's different kinds of salesmen. There's people trying to sell you stuff for 10 years, and there's people trying to sell you stuff once. 
And people like Johnny Hunt and Steve Flockhart, listen, it's not a gift of evangelism. It's not the Holy Spirit. They're just good at that. They're not shy. Think about it. These guys don't have any shame. Some people are embarrassed to evangelize because when you evangelize somebody, it's basically saying to that other person, there's something deficient in you. And that thing is not deficient in me because I have Jesus. And that's true. So when you think of people who have no shame, they make good salesmen, don't they? You know who's a good example? I watched a documentary about him the other day. It is the founder of Girls Gone Wild. I forget his name. It was Joe something or other. And this guy could go out with a video crew and get women who were strangers to take their clothes off and let him film. I mean, let's pretend we're not Christians for a minute. Let's pretend we are pagan sinners and we want to see naked chicks. Are we going to just go ask strangers to take their clothes off? No, we'd be ashamed. We don't get slapped in the face. We'd be ashamed to do that. It's insulting. But this guy did it. And he made millions of dollars. And he got women to do it. How did he do it? I don't know. But he's shameless. And you have people like Johnny Hunt and Steve Flockhart and Aragon Canner. They're shameless. That's why they'll make up stories. Anything for a conversion. Unscrupulous salesmen will tell you anything for a buck. Sort of like carnival barkers who are trying to get you to spend a dollar and then they move to the next town and the next town and the next town and by the time they come back the next year you forgot they swindled you. That's how a lot of these evangelism growth guys are. It's about getting people to say yes. Yes to coming to church. Yes to walking the aisle. Yes to getting baptized. Yes to coming back to church. Yes to giving. Yes to serving. Not only do they want to get the unchurched people to say yes, they want to get the people in the church to go out and be salesmen too. It's sort of like Mary Kay or Amway or Rodan and Fields, and I think that's why you see a lot of Rodan and Fields and Mary Kay uh, in church world, especially among the leaders and informal leaders of church. A lot of that network marketing. Because those people are good at turning other people into money-generating assets for them. So you think of a, sale, uh, a pastor, the senior pastor, and some board of deacons unbiblically tells him it's his job to grow numbers. So he's got to go out shamelessly and start evangelizing people. He's like, all right, we got to come up with a program. I'm going to hire an associate pastor, and he's going to run the program, and I'm going to supervise it, and we're going to get everybody excited about evangelism. Let me ask you this. If your congregation isn't naturally excited about evangelism, what does that say about your congregation that you've got to goad them into it? Yeah, you ever go you go to the car dealership and you just need a car to get from point A to point B. That's all you need, man. Uh oh, am I running into a wreck here on I-75? Golly, this weather has just been awful. What an awful day. You go into the car dealership and you want a plain Jane Honda Accord. Thirty miles to the gallon, dependable car. And they're like, well, you know, why don't you get the V6? Get a little more power. You don't need it. 
Why don't you get the leather seats? She's going to be covered. You didn't go in there to buy that, but they convince you to pay extra money to get that. They have to convince you that you want. You didn't want it. They convince you it's good. That goes with all kinds of selling and upselling. Would you like to supersize that? It used to be, would you like fries with that? Now, all right, you got the fries. Do you want to supersize it? It's 49 cents extra. Ever get on the Chick-fil-A app? Medium fries, medium drink. Would you like to make it a large for 30 cents more? So the salesmen get people excited. Yeah, we're excited. But it's to their benefit. And they think their job as pastors is to get people excited about evangelism. Is that their job? You know, I used to play a video game before it got ruined by, I think, Ed O'Bannon, who sued him, sued EA Sports. EA Sports, NCAA football. I bought it every year. And it would have Kirk Herbstreet and Lee Corso, and it might have had Chris Fowler as the announcers. And it would put in their little sayings. And one of the sayings, Lee Corso, would, because he's a color guy, one of his sayings was, if you're not excited about playing football, you ought to be on the sidelines watching. And that's true. I can't stand getting kids on one of my teams, whether it's basketball, soccer, or flag football, who's not excited about being there. If you're not excited, don't get on my team. Go get on the field. We're here to hustle, give 100%, be aggressive, have fun, get better, and win. If you're just standing around navel-gazing, find some other activity that you can't lose at. I can't stand when people are impassionate. All right? It's good to be excited. By the way, I'm driving through a horrible tempest, and I can barely see 10 feet in front of me. But I'm going to tell you this. I actually have more visibility than I had when I was driving to work this morning at this exact same spot. So what you do is you have these pastors full of churches of people who are not excited about evangelism. So they have to goad them into getting excited, and they have to come up with a formal program to get people to do it. Sort of like when you have a factory, like, I'm not talking about my factory, just any given factory. You might have a factory, and it's full of people who don't like their job, and it's the manager's job to get them to do it to motivate them somehow. Some people are just self-motivated, and they want to do a good job, but some people aren't. And the managers have to get everybody up to that level. So they come up with an incentive program. Right? Incentivizing somebody to do something. Make it excited. And make it easy for them. One, two, three. It's just like, just, listen, you don't have to know a bunch of complicated theology. Just know, A, admit that you're a sinner. And confess. Admit, believe, confess. Man, just tell people to admit, believe, confess. Just use Romans 3.23. Admit, believe, confess. Romans 3.23, John 3.16. Romans 10.9. Admit that you're a sinner, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Believe. For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten Son, and whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and that God raised him from the dead. Whosoever, not whosoever, anyone who believes that Christ is Lord, and that God raised him from the dead will be saved. That's Romans 10.9. See? Memorize something. 
and then you're going to pick a partner and we're going to schedule you to go out and it's real formal it's a it's a sales program here's the thing i'm going to get back to that why do you have to make a program out of it why do you have to goad people into doing it why do you have to dedicate sermon time and websites and ball pits into needling people into evangelizing Shouldn't they just be evangelizing the people that they don't know are evangelized? Oh, I'm sorry, the people that they know are unevangelized? I mean, think of the people that you live in your neighborhood with, just your neighbors across the street, next door, the people who, the, the, who work in the offices adjacent to yours, people on your sports teams, you know who's evangelized and who's not. And hopefully, you've evangelized all the people who aren't Christians in your circle. And hopefully, you've evangelized strangers before. It's the Holy Spirit gives you gives you opportunity to do so. And that's what I'm talking... That's when I get to evangelism in balance. I never want to say that evangelism is in balance because there's too much of it. You can't have too much evangelism. All right? It's like, that's, having, that's like having too much money. You can't have too much. You can't share the good news of the gospel with a lost and dying world enough. But could it be if you have to goad your people into evangelism schemes that you didn't do a good enough job evangelizing them in the first place? And if you think about it biblically, and you think about the parables of the, the pearl of great price, and like the guy finds the pearl, and he buys the land, he gets, sells all he has to buy the land to get that pearl, because like that's the gospel means so much to him. And then when you have it, you want to share the gospel with people. You want to share the good news. Think about the parables of the lost things, the parable of the lost coins, the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. What happens? The people find their lost things and they share with joy the news that they found the lost things. That should come naturally. Now I fear that I'm going into a tornado or a hurricane. There's leaves blowing at me. This is bad. That should come naturally. I want you to think about this. You should not be impressed when you hear someone compassionately, sorry, passionately, not compassionately, you should not be impressed when you hear somebody passionately and publicly share the gospel. It should not impress you whatsoever. When someone shares the gospel with urgency, it should not be impressive to you. But I'm going to tell you what, it impresses some. It impre it's performative for some preachers. I, I, I hope you can find Jerry Vines giving an invitation. Find Jerry Vines giving an invitation if you can. I've seen him do it in person. He, listen to the bells, and listen to the bells, and he puts his arms up for people to come down and get saved. And people are like, wow, Jerry Vines is powerful. Wow, he really wants people to get saved. Well, don't you? 
because people are so embarrassed about doing anything, like talking to a stranger because they can't do it because they don't have that sales ability that Jerry Vines, Johnny Hunt, and Steve Lockhart have. It doesn't come from education. It's just how some people are. They're impressed at the people that have that and they think they have some kind of evangelism gift and they want to pay them money and they want to put them in charge and they want to say, all right, you do it. And then that person says, all right, now i got a bunch of people who don't want to do it and they're impressed that I, I do it and I need them to do it, so I'm going to goad them into doing it. That's where all these evangelism schemes come from. It's a mindset. Number one, it's a mindset of uh, decisional regeneration. And number two, it's a mindset of, like, well, that's, that's God's man. And I'm not de- denying that there are evangelists out there because the Holy Spirit gave us a pest. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. That's in the Bible. What I'm saying is, the church needs to be, or have its emphasis, I should say this, the emphasis of the local church needs to be on discipleship and other forms of ministry just as much as it is about evangelizing people. And the people who do evangelize people shouldn't be viewed as some maverick, some special guy. She should be viewed because the Holy Spirit does it. And the people who are gifted otherwise, nobody's like, wow, look at them. Oh, wow. Gift of teaching. Wow. Gift of this, that, or the other. Wow. No, it's evangelism that people are all, oh, yeah, about. All right, I've made my point, and I'm, now I'm going to drive home and try not to die in this horrible storm. <sighs> All right, almost almost didn't stop in time. Thanks for listening to the Christian Commute. <laughs> Lord willing, we'll be back with you again tomorrow. No, no, sorry, not tomorrow. Lord willing, I'll be back with you again. <laughs> Lord willing, Tuesday, but most likely next Tuesday. As always, God bless. Don't forget to write in to SethDunn88 at gmail.com and give me your question about Christian theology and apologetics. As always, God bless. And as always, remember, Christianity is not about getting saved. It's about being saved. Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to SethDunn88 at gmail.com. If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.